right, I am back after uh, a break during November. Um, you know, I was hoping to put an episode out in November. I thought about doing a, a Thanksgiving episode and focusing on diseases that are related to overeating and and uh, drinking too much. Over drinking, I guess you could say. Um, and turkey-related deaths. Actually, I haven't had any turkey-related deaths, but... Uh, I decided, uh, you know, I would shelve the holiday-themed uh, episode uh, since I did three Halloween episodes. So maybe I'll do that one toward the end of the year, or maybe I'll just save it for next year. Uh, today, I'm actually, you know, going to do a real forensic topic. I'm going to talk about burns, smoke inhalation. And, um, you know, uh, up to this point in the podcast, we have done... Um, kind of an introduction of what it's like to sign these cases out, what it's like to do autopsies. And we haven't talked about a specific topic. I did that because I uh, kind of wanted to make season one an introduction so that anybody could learn about forensics. And then in future seasons, I was going to do more of, um, you know, real like nitty gritty, you know, forensics and uh, not do too many special, specialized episodes. But I decided to do burns and smoke inhalation because I have had many of those cases this year. And I live in the northern part of the northern hemisphere, so right now as I do this in December, we are uh, nearing winter. Um, And so cold weather usually results in an increase in smoke inhalation, carbon monoxide, and fire deaths. So I wanted to do this uh, kind of, you know, not only to give you a a nice little overview of a forensic topic, but also as a public health measure, yes, because forensic pathologists are uh, part, very big part of the public health apparatus. So um, we're going to talk about that. And some of these things are very surprising when it comes to uh, burns and smoke inhalation. People, when they think about us doing autopsies, They think about us doing bodies that are, you know, um, natural, unexpected deaths or murders. Those are the first two that come to the mind of somebody who isn't in the field. Um, However, we get bodies that are burned to a crisp, completely charred, and I'm going to talk about these cases today. Now, before we can talk about what these bodies are like, and we will get to that, uh, we have to understand what exactly fire is. Now, that sounds like a kind of a primitive type thing to say, right? Because you know what fire is. It's light, it's heat, and it produces some smoke. You know, it's a caveman-level thinking there. But uh, we have to think about it more on a chemical level and and a physical level uh, when we get into the science of investigating fire deaths, okay? So whether the fire is in a car or a house or some other enclosed space, um, whether it's, you know, electrical or there's a accelerant involved, an accelerant is like something like lighter fluid or gasoline, kerosene, um, that is used to uh, promote the fire, um, it's combustion. So at, at its, at its uh, uh, you know, um, most uh, elemental idea is that is a combustion reaction. And if for those of you who've had chemistry, it's an exothermic reaction, which means it produces heat, light, and uh, in this case, you know, products of combustion. The products of combustion um, start when the fire reaches what's known as a ignition point. And that's when you have something that is flammable, but it's not yet burning. And then at the ignition point, that's when you see flame. So generically speaking, whatever is burning is considered the fuel. Now that could be wood, it could be clothing, it could be uh, gasoline, or it can be human tissue, human flesh. So the fuel uh, in the presence of oxygen, which is uh, present in air, of course, air is chemically not all oxygen, it's mostly nitrogen, but um, about 21% is oxygen, and that is enough to promote a combustion reaction. Now, the products of combustion, this is where we start to really kind of 
you know, get it kind of gets interesting here. Well, chemically speaking, it's carbon dioxide, water, water vapor, um, and then it produces energy, so light and heat. And that's what produces the problem. You know, obviously, we have the burning and we have the charring. But see, there are unburnt products uh, that occur in a fire. And that's also part of the problem, part of why people die. These unburnt products include hydrogen gas, soot, so a kind of carbonaceous material, the dark uh, grayish-black material that's left um, when a fire occurs, a combustion reaction occurs. But most importantly for my purposes is the presence of carbon monoxide, okay? So when there is insufficient oxygen to completely combust something, that's particularly the carbon portion, you will get carbon uh, monoxide. So that chemically is one carbon atom and one oxygen atom. And um, interestingly, now I was kind of a chemistry nerd when I was in college, a little bit in high school, but more so in college. So I would get very excited about things that have triple bonds. And you know, that's the kind of person I am. If you know me, you know that I get excited about very um, ridiculous things that most people don't care about. So I love triple bonds when it comes to chemistry. And carbon monoxide is one of those chemicals that have a uh, triple bond. So now, you know, with Knowing that as part of my biography, you can uh, probably just shut the podcast off, or if you want to, you can continue to listen. Well, anyway, in short, the main two products uh, is the radiant energy. So, uh, you know, everyone's had at least some minor burn, um, you know, from heat or light, and I include sunburns in that, and then carbon monoxide. Now, we will address the carbon monoxide in a little bit, but I want to first talk about um, what it means to have a blank degree burn, first degree, second degree, third degree. So most people, even without medical background, understand that third degree burns are bad. Uh, but they don't really maybe know the differences between first and second degree burns. And then there's something called a fourth degree burn. Okay, so I'm going to go through these and I'm going to kind of tell you what they mean so that we can have a basis to understand what uh, these burns are. So a first degree burn is uh, the superficial epidermis. Okay, so if you uh, are listening, you can uh, imagine you can touch your skin, look at your skin. That is the superficial epidermis, anything you can touch. So there are squamous cells there, and then those squamous cells are covered by keratin. And that's what makes our skin waterproof. Well, that's the superficial epidermis. Everything above kind of the basement membrane of, of the skin. And this produces pain, redness, and even swelling. And so this falls under the realm of a bad sunburn, uh, possibly getting a scald from hot water or hot liquid, uh, and even a, a little electrical burn. Not, a, not an electrical burn producing death, such as uh, high voltage electricity or um, lightning. Those are much different. Um, you can go much deeper into the tissue, but just a, a little burn that you might get a, a shock you might get, you're going to have pain, redness, and swelling. So I like to think of this mainly as a sunburn. We've all, most of us have had sunburns. Um, I'm fairly pale skinned, so I get sunburnt pretty easily. Um, and uh, so we've all suffered su first degree burns. Now the second degree burns uh, is the same as the first degree, but you get the addition of blisters. Okay. So this would be something like uh, boiling water, uh, even a, f a fire related burn. I remember when I was a child um, seeing, a, I was at a Halloween party and there was a kid that was near a fire and he uh, accidentally kind of tripped and put his hands down in the fire and uh, burned his hands badly. Um, not, not to the point where, you know, you could see bone or tissue or anything like that, but um, that that always stayed with me. And, uh, you know, seeing this kid sort of screaming and yelling, uh, that was probably going to be a second degree, um, uh, potentially a third degree burn there. And this involves both the epidermis, so that's the part of your skin that you can see and touch, and then the dermis, 
which is below. So if you think about the skin structure, you have the epidermis, you have a little thin basement membrane, and then you have the dermis. And that's the area that contains connective tissue, blood vessels, uh, very small blood vessels and things like that. So you get blisters. Um, one time when I was young, before I was, uh, you know, in the medical field, uh, I used to work at a golf course and there was this guy there who um, he always used to take his shirt off when he would mow. We would always mow on the golf course. And he was the most pale-skinned person you've ever seen. Very, very um, white and um, very blonde hair. So um, sort of uh, just, you know, obviously very uh, Northern European background. And this guy took his shirt off to mow, and and we used to mow on the fairways. So you were kind of out there for two or three hours in the highest point of the radiant sun. So kind of like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And this guy got such severe second-degree burns, he actually had to enter the hospital. He had blisters all over him, um, you know, kind of like every bit of exposed skin, huge blisters that were seeping and um, weeping sort of. And this causes a fever, so hyperthermia, and also a very, almost like a flu-like illness. Now, some of us have received pretty severe sunburns that have caused a sick feeling. You'll actually get sick to your stomach. And this is probably a cytokine response. When you have injured tissue, uh, whether it's an infection or some other process, you get the production of cytokines, and those can make us feel like we're sick. As a side note, when people get... Um, vaccination shots like you've you've probably yourself said this or heard somebody say this i don't get the flu shot because i get the flu when i get it okay and i this is an aside this is not to do with fire uh and i'm not saying that by the way i i am a healthcare worker so i have to get a flu shot every year i don't really have a choice uh to get it or not but people who say that they have the have gotten the flu after the flu shot what that is is an exaggerated immune response to the flu um, virus itself in the uh, vaccine. It's not a live virus that can cause infection. So people don't get the flu, but what they get is they get an immunologic reaction that is tantamount to having the flu. It's just not an infection. And in fact, that's a very good sign uh, that your vaccination worked. If you get that sort of, you know, a little bit of fever, achiness, maybe even chills, not feel good uh, for, you know, 18 hours, something like that. That's actually a good sign that it's really working. And we will hear a lot more about this going forward as these COVID vaccines are coming out. We will have people reporting that they um, feel very sick and they have fever, but that's actually a sign that the vaccine is working very well in the system because especially with the COVID vaccines, those aren't even viruses. Those are something called mRNA or messenger RNA, ribonucleic acid. It's actually a nucleic acid. It's not even a living thing. Uh, and we can talk about the the biology of that. I, I may do that in my next episode, just a real quick biology of those vaccines so that you understand what is happening. Um, they're not viruses. They're actually nucleic acid. But again, um, I am a little bit off topic here. The point is you can get a flu-like illness with a second-degree burn. Now, we go to third-degree burns. This is something we're all familiar with because um, whether we know somebody who've had one or we um, know somebody who has survived um, a third-degree burn or we watch the news and we hear about somebody who was in a house fire and suffered third-degree burns, this is a full-thickness burn. So this is a burn of the epidermis, the superficial dermis, and then the deep dermis, uh, even down into the fatty tissue. So again, we have to think about the structure of skin. Epidermis, basement membrane, dermis, and then under that, <clears throat> the deep dermis or the skeletal, um, sorry, the um, fatty tissue. That's uh, kind of connective tissue there. So these are third degree burns and the patient can often have black or white skin. Their skin will be blackened or sometimes it'll be ice white. And actually, at autopsy, when I see these uh, persons who come in, these bodies with white patches of skin, I know that those are third-degree burns. And often, the ones who survive, um, they describe numbness. They'll say, it didn't even hurt that much at all. And that's because what happened is, is the whatever um, was responsible for the fire burned up the nerve endings, so they can't even feel it. 
um, we have to calculate the body surface area. Um, there's a so-called rule of nines, and I know all the healthcare workers uh, listening to this has seen the rule of nines. And basically, you divide the body into um, parts like the head, the trunk, each arm, each leg, the pelvis. And like the head is 9% of the body. Each arm is, I think, 9% of the body. And then the trunk is 18%, um, I think, front and back. I don't have the entire specs uh, right in front of me, but you can Google the rule of nines to see what body surface area calculation is. And we do that at autopsy as well. Because at autopsy, we are documenting injuries anytime there is an injurious uh, thing that happens, um, whether it's a car accident or a gunshot wound. Well, in this case, burns, it'll give you some idea of the amount of burn and the distribution of the burn, which is important for the investigation, especially if there's law enforcement involved, if there's a potential crime such as arson and murder and things like that. So that's your third degree burn. But now the forensic realm, we have fourth degree burns. And I know that there are people listening to this who they may be working in burn units. Um, they may be physicians that work with burns such as plastic surgeons um, or nursing that uh, have spent time in burn units and burn ICUs. And they also know about fourth degree burns. I'm not saying that's um, completely in the forensic realm, but I tend to see it more because the people that I the people that I see, the patients I see, they're they're dead. They've had such severe burns. There's no way they're going to survive them. And so, fourth degree burns are charred skin, exposed organs, exposed muscles, tendons, um, even bones. And like, and you can see this in people who survive who have a severe burn, let's say with a blowtorch or even an electrical type burn to the hand, it can just destroy the soft tissue. You can see the bones and they manage to survive, thank goodness, but they always have to have grafts when they do that. I tend to see these a lot because my burn patients are more often than not, let's say three-fourths of the time, they're charred. So they're in a house that's completely burned up. They're in a car that's completely burned up and the, the body is essentially black, completely burned to a crisp. So now that we understand what fire is and what kind of burns there are, we can talk about the circumstances uh, in which I do burn victims and also what questions need to be answered. Now, basically, we must determine whether or not the person was alive at the time of the fire. That is essential because that gives us an idea of the situation that was happening. So if they're dead at the time of the fire, then did they have a natural death and then a fire started after their natural death? Or were they murdered and then somebody set the place on fire? That's always the number one question when I have a charred body pulled out of a car or a house is, were they alive? Secondly, uh, and, and then actually this kind of goes along with the first point, is murder. You know, um, murder, missing a murder for a forensic pathologist is a never event. Now, there are pathologists that have missed murders and probably in our, all of our careers it happens because you just don't have the proof um, that someone was murdered. But we have some special things we can do at the time of autopsy to check for whether someone was murdered. I'm going to talk about that in um, just a set, you know, just a few minutes and uh, the manner of death, of course, this is very important. The manner of death is what's going to go on the death certificate, and that can determine a lot of things. It can determine if there's going to be legal action. So if it was a murder or an arson-related event, um, was the murder occur did, it, did the death occur before the fire and therefore was the person murdered? And then there's simple stuff. Was it an accident? Did the house just catch on fire and they die? And or did they have a natural death and then they were doing something, cooking or whatever, and then the house catches on fire. The manner of death is important for legal reasons, but also for insurance purposes. Um, it's not something that I obsess over, but oh, now let me, let me go back there. I do obsess over getting the cause and the manner of death right. If I didn't, I wouldn't be a professional. But I don't, for instance, get a body and then ask every family, what is your insurance situation? That, that doesn't have anything to do. Uh, I would not make a call of a cause and manner of death based on an insurance situation, but it does matter to the families if they have a type of life insurance. 
So, um, you know, also when we talk, we mostly think about house fires, but car fires are actually uh, surprisingly common. Um, we see a vehicle crash, and then once they crash, uh, the car can sometimes catch on fire. And we need to know, did that person die in the accident and then the car caught on fire? Or did they uh, have a natural, like a, let's say a heart attack, and then crash the car and then it caught on fire? So there's all sorts of questions to be answered when we do that sort of thing. Now, so basically in terms of procedural stuff, how is a fire autopsy properly conducted? Well, these are multi-dimensional investigations because they involve police, fire departments, fire marshal, death scene investigators, and then, of course, my work at the time of autopsy. Um, the morgues in these cases are packed with living people instead of there's more living than there is dead um, when I'm doing these autopsies. And I'm not a big fan of crowded morgues. I kind of like it, I mean, ideally to be me my assistant, and the body. However, with fire deaths, there there's all the people I just mentioned, plus sometimes a prosecutor, a lawyer will actually have to be there if it's going to be a criminal case. And the morgues are just packed with people. And so um, it's not my preference, but that's the way it is. Now, uh, what I have to do is, you know, I need to know up front, does this seem suspicious? So I talk to the police, I talk to the fire departments, uh, was there a sign of um, accelerant being used? Um, did you find uh, shell casings from gunshot? You know, from gunshot being fired, from guns being fired, things like that. I always like to know um, up front if they're worried, but it also doesn't really change a ton of what I'm doing. I still conduct all these the same way. Um, all my autopsies are essentially murders until proved otherwise. Fortunately, I can prove otherwise within. 10 seconds of opening the bag and looking at the body. But, um, you know, sometimes, the, well, the condition of the body is very important. So if I look at the body and they're not badly burned, I can check for trauma really quickly. You know, I can see if, has their head been bashed in? Do they have stab wounds, gunshot wounds? And if they don't, then I won't maybe do the full, the so-called full meal deal, as they say, um, on the body. I won't do full x-rays and all these other tests and everything. But um, x-rays are the first thing I order. And I know there's probably some radiology people listening to this and they're saying x-rays. Well, he's saying that incorrectly. Uh, no, I, it's, I know that it's radiographs or so-called plane films. That's what we call it. The x-ray is the actual beam of energy used to obtain the radiograph. But I have to use common terms because a, a lot and maybe even most of the people that listen to this podcast are not in the medical field. And so when you say, I went to the doctor and I got a chest x-ray, that everyone knows what that means. But if you say, I went to the doctor and I got a plane film, or I went to the doctor and I got a radiograph, some people don't understand what that means. Um, so I'm kind of using the the common term, which is x-ray. Now, why do we get x-rays? Well, I order full body x-rays on everybody that comes in for a fire, particularly if it's charred. If it's charred, um, then you can't really do an external exam. You can't look at the skin because it's burnt to a crisp. So we do x-rays um, for multiple reasons. And mostly what I'm looking for is bullets. Um, if you find a bullet or multiple bullets in a body, a charred body, and uh, no one was around to see the fire, that's pretty suspicious. Generally, those are going to be murders. Um, rarely, you could imagine that there's a suicide. Uh, somebody could start a fire and then shoot themselves, and they would have a, a, you know, a bullet in their head, and it would look like a homicide, but it wouldn't be. And for those, you have um, usually the gun is found at the scene. So, um, but again, I've had that very rarely. Uh, most of the time, we are looking for bullets in terms of murder, but we're also looking for knife tips. So yes, that's true. If you stab somebody hard enough, you can actually break off part of the blade. And the knife tip, because it's made of metal, is radiopaque, which means it looks white on an x-ray. It's very clearly seen. Um, it's very dense. Metal is very dense. The atoms are very close together. And as a result, 
you have a complete whiteout and you can see like a little sharp thing. Now that's important because you also want to be able to know, is there something sharp that I'm going to be sticking my hands in at autopsy? Well, it's nice because if you do find a knife tip, you can take that out. And then if they find the murder weapon, a knife with a broken piece, you can match it perfectly to the weapon. And then you've got a great piece of evidence for your trial that eventually occurs. So, um, you know, that I haven't found knife tips very often, maybe once in my career, but bullets I find a lot more often. Now, there's another reason we do it, and that is to find uh, surgical implants within the body. Now, I'm not talking about breast implants because those are not metal. I'm talking about um, metal implantation, anything containing metal. So like a hip replacement, a plate in the head, um, even a pacemaker in the chest. You can see those on x-ray and those can be helped to identify a body because remember we um, have a tough time identifying the body if it's charred. But if we know that uh, person X lived in a house by themselves, we know they had a hip replacement. We then do x-rays and we see that the person had a hip replacement and there's no other foul play. Um, That's pretty good indication. That's the person we're looking for. So I always look at the x-rays before the case um, and even if they're negative, it can still be foul play. Keep in mind, bullets do pass through bodies. Okay, so I can shoot somebody and the bullet can go right through, particularly if you're not using a hollow point bullet. Hollow point bullets are meant to kind of splay open when they go into the body. They are meant to stay in a human body. They're not meant to actually pass through. So, um, and that was a protective measure. They were, they were, um, developed that way so that if you were to shoot somebody, uh, if a, let's just say a police officer had to shoot somebody and didn't want to have the bullet go through and hit a bystander, the bullet would actually stay in the body. Um, at least that's what I read in a gunshot wound book once. I don't know if that's the exact rationale, but uh, hollow points will stay in. Non-hollow points will sometimes pass through. Very high-powered weapons, such as rifles, the bullet will also pass through. So if I find a charred body with no bullets in it, I'm still not completely convinced. Um, Usually what will happen is when I finally get into the body, I can look around for signs of injury that looks consistent with a gunshot wound. And fortunately, I I don't think I've had that happen very often. Um, The other thing is if you stab somebody, the knife most often doesn't break. Um... You know, so not looking for knife tips, it's helpful if you find them, but it doesn't actually do anything if you don't find them. So um, what I'm getting at with x-rays is we're identifying things, the things we can see, but we also need to identify the body itself. And this is a huge part of fire autopsies because the bodies are burned beyond recognition often. The skin of the face is often completely burned off in a in a big time fire like that. So we have to have ways to di- identify the body. One is what I just mentioned, implanted hardware in the body, particularly if that implanted hardware has a serial number that you can compare to a medical record. So every now and then we found a piece um, you know, a knee replacement or um a um pacemaker and you can actually match the serial number to what's in the medical records and then you know, you can make a positive identification based on that. But there are other ways we need to think about identifying the body. And the classic is dental records. You always hear about people that are burned beyond recognition and they were identified by dental records. I think we've all heard that term used on the news. And um, that is done because people have unique appearing um you know, teeth. Everybody's teeth is uh, are different. You know, in the ways that they're set in the jaw, teeth that are missing, teeth that have fillings, teeth that have caps, and any other various dental work that it particularly involves metal. You can go back to the dental records and match them. And a special kind of dentist can do this. Um, has training in forensic odontology. That is the Uh, specific term. And I think my state has three or four forensic odontologists. Um, There may be more. I don't keep a, a, you know, a a list in my Rolodex of forensic odontologists, 
a lot of people listening to this probably don't even know what Rolodex is, but that's a, an old thing that people used to say. Anyway, now everybody just has their contacts in their phone. And that's, by the way, if you ever give me your contact and it's in the phone, I will never look at it again. I will never be able to find it. Um, but that's just, that's a separate story. All right. Um, so talking about forensic odontology, so how do we match them? Well, sometimes we're going to give them x-rays to match to x-rays on file. Sometimes we do pictures of the teeth. We take really good, clear digital photos, and they have software that they can use to match. Um, I know one guy I had, we matched on the shape of his front teeth. He had an extremely unusual bite, and we were able, he was very decomposed. This actually wasn't a fire case. It was a, a decomposition case where um, a dog had actually eaten his face off and he was decomposed. That's a, that's another story for another podcast. But the identification was made without x-rays. It was actually made on the the shape of his front teeth um, and his incisors. It was very unusual. So that's one way to do it. But the other way, the more hardcore way, is to actually remove the jaws themselves. And what I do is, is I can dissect all the skin away. Sometimes the skin isn't even there. And I can disarticulate the mandible. So I take the mandible right off. And then you take a bone saw and you saw through the maxilla. Okay, the maxilla, for those who haven't had a lot of anatomy, that is the upper jaw, the um, upper part or the lower part of the upper jaw of the face, uh, kind of in continuity with the skull base. But basically what you can do is you take a saw, you saw right through it, you pull the maxilla out, and then they fit together. The, the mandible and the maxilla can usually fit right together, and then you can put that in a specimen container and take it to a forensic odontologist. Um, I don't have to do that very often, thankfully, because that is a laborious procedure. And my concern with that procedure is that it's, it's somewhat indelicate. It takes a long time, and I wouldn't want to accidentally knock teeth out with uh, moving the saw around, moving the head around, uh, because when people have had such severe fire burns, the bony tissue is very, um, it's, it's easily fragmented. And so I have teeth uh, of the burn victims. Sometimes they just fall out very easily. So I try not to disturb the face very much. And uh, now there's even, you know, one more very hardcore thing, which is even more hardcore than that. And that is to have the head, the entire head with the skull removed and given to a forensic dentist or forensic odontologist. And rarely I have had to do that on cases where you basically make a cut through the cervical vertebrae, um, the intervertebral disc area, actually, and then you can give them the head, and then they examine it. Um, fortunately, the times I've had to do that, I didn't have to actually send a head through the mail. I wouldn't have done that anyway. I would hand deliver it. But um, usually they'll come to me, and and they will physically um, you know, take the, the specimen themselves. Um, but no, we don't routinely cut people's heads off. That is an extremely rare situation where we've had to remove um, the skull with the, the jaws intact themselves. Uh, usually those these are unidentified bodies that are um, found in the woods and they don't have any you know um, family members that they know about and things like that. So fortunately, we don't do that very often. Um, but it is a little unusual to, you know, have a head or a skull and put it into a bucket. Now, um, these are sometimes, you know, very, very good for positive ID. Um, but we have to consider, you know, people um, want to have funerals for their loved ones. But when they have such severe charring and burning, we don't actually have to worry much about... Um, the tissue of the face, like on my normal autopsies, I try to make as few cuts to the body, to the head as possible so that the body can go to the mortician, be prepared and have an open casket if they want it. And so we try to be very careful with the body so that they can do that. Burn victims, severe burn and charring, it's a little bit different. They're not going to have an open casket because they are 
there's essentially no no tissue remaining, um, on, at least on the face or the skull. A lot of times the skull will be cracked open as well because of the expanding, um, when you have heat and then you have expansion of gases, expansion of a liquid being uh you know, evaporated into gas at high pressure in the skull, sometimes the skull will actually sort of pop open. And um, to the inexperienced forensic person, they sometimes will um, interpret this as head trauma. Okay, well, they were bashed in the head with a baseball bat and then set on fire. And then, no, that's often not. So that's uh, for those listening who are young uh, people interested in forensics or maybe you're a fellow or a pathology resident, don't jump the gun and think that when you have a fire victim with a skull fracture that they were hit. No, often it's uh, as a result of the fire. Um, so anyway, uh, but you know that's a little bit on forensic odontology. I mean, we may be able to do an entire episode on that at some point. But the way that we tend to identify people now is that DNA technology is very, it's very good. It's very reliable, super specific and sensitive, and also very easy to obtain. Um, You can get DNA from a tooth, from a bone. Sometimes I'll saw part of a rib and send it. Um, You can pull a tooth if you have to. But there are liquid, there is liquid blood in many of these bodies. And that is, you know, very surprising to most people. Even my autopsy assistants sometimes will be surprised at how much liquid blood will still be in a body that has been charred and burning in a fire for two hours. Um, The vascular system, it just so turns out, is a pretty good insulator. And so um, these bodies are often almost completely incinerated. You have, um, you know, basically the limbs. So the arms and the legs are burnt uh, to the point of ash. And then a lot of times we'll get like part of a skull, a trunk, meaning a chest and an abdomen and a pelvis. And that's kind of what we have and it's burnt. And then you go ahead and open it up like normal and you can find liquid blood. Typically in the heart is the best place because that's going to be the the biggest reservoir upon death. The aorta would be the second best place. And um, for those of you who follow me at my Instagram page or pages, um, there's a picture of this. So I did this... um, I think I put a picture up recently. I've had many of these cases, and I don't remember exactly when the case was. But um, I wanted to demonstrate that you can find liquid blood in a uh, charred corpse. And uh, that picture is on my Instagram, which, if you don't follow it, is at anatomy and the dead with an underscore in between each word. Or my other Instagram page, which is sort of based on this podcast, is called Knife After Death. I haven't put a lot of photos up there. Most of my photo teaching is at the Anatomy and the Dead, the Dead account. And then the Knife After Death Instagram page is mostly for announcements and, you know, I'm doing a new podcast and stuff like that. But I think this image is, is at both pages. So you might want to check that out. And uh, it's pretty cool. Now, uh, what I do is I get blood, which of course is for DNA. I can send that for DNA testing. And we actually get it back quickly. Often within the week, sometimes within a couple of days, we can make a positive identification. Um, You know, and I also want to just say that what about people say, what about fingerprints? Well, often there aren't any fingers left on these bodies. However, if you are able to find some, some skin of the hand that's present, you can still do fingerprints for identification. And the most old school way to identify is by fingerprints. So every time we have a case where the identity is not confirmed, the police will come and they will perform fingerprints on these. And so, um, but you know, mostly my burn bodies do not even have fingers, much less fingerprints. So back on drawing the blood, we've drawn the blood for DNA purposes. We've x-rayed the body. So we have a good sense of being able to get, get an identification Um, I think on all my cases, the identification we've gotten a hundred percent of the time and that's no testament to me. Uh, that's testament to the technology that other people use to, uh, identify the body. So, um, but the liquid blood is important for another huge reason, and that is carbon monoxide testing. Yes. We're going to talk about carbon monoxide again. Uh, we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast and we need this blood 
for carbon monoxide and for toxicology studies. So what are we looking for? We don't just test for carbon monoxide. No, we don't. We test for what's called carboxyhemoglobin. And what that is, is you have the carbon monoxide molecules that actually bind to hemoglobin molecules. And now just real basic, real uh, simple physiology uh, here is that hemoglobin is in all of our red blood cells, every single one of our red blood cells. And it is the um, component that delivers oxygen to the tissues. So each hemoglobin molecule uh, will have binding sites for oxygen which we get when we breathe in. So we breathe in the oxygen, and then in our lungs, um, the oxygen binds to the hemoglobin. The hemoglobin goes through the blood into the tissues and delivers it. Now, why is carbon monoxide a problem? Because carbon monoxide, believe it or not, binds to hemoglobin 200 times the affinity of oxygen. So what I'm saying is if you have Oxygen and hemoglo um, oxygen and carbon monoxide together, the hemoglobin is going to preferentially take up that carbon monoxide. And the problem with that is it actually interrupts cellular respiration. Um, our body is no longer able to make uh, the chemical of energy ATP. Our mitochondria don't work anymore, and we die pretty quickly. Um, it's almost in some ways a form of suffocation because you're no longer able to take in oxygen. Your hemoglobin sites are all bound up with carbon monoxide. So what am I looking for in the tox? Well, I'm looking for carboxyhemoglobin saturation, which is typically 0 to 5%. Now, someone would say, well, why is it not just zero? Carbon monoxide is a poison. Ah, uh, but it isn't just a poison or a byproduct of, of, of um, combustion. It is actually a byproduct of biochemical processes within cells. So you can have some low level of carbon monoxide produced by your own cells. And that's not a poison. That's just a quirk of chemistry. And it doesn't kill us because we have plenty of oxygen uh, laying around. So, um, you know, that's always something that kind of surprises people that we could be walking around with four or 6% carbon monoxide in our blood and doing perfectly fine. So, um, you know, just something to remember. Um, also in smokers, people who routinely smoke, the carbon monoxide level can be 10% or even a little bit higher. I've even seen it up to 12, 13, 14%. And that is because the action of smoking is, in a sense, a combustion process. You are lighting something, it is burning, and you are inhaling it. And if there is some incomplete combustion, you will have carbon monoxide in there. Now that doesn't kill you in that way. Smoking will kill you in other ways, but not from carbon monoxide. Uh, I don't think it's very helpful to have carbon monoxide elevated to 14% um, in, in addition to all the other problems you can have from that. But if I see a carbon monoxide at that level, I'll usually ask or I'll find medical records and find out if in fact they are smokers. So what we're looking for is we are looking for carbon monoxide generally above 15% and more in the 50, 60, 70 type percent. It can even be higher than that. Um, fire deaths, when people are alive, the carbon monoxide is usually so high that it's unequivocally um, related to the fire. It's not related to smoking or some quirk of biochemistry. So, um, you know, that's... The main thing we're looking for there, of course, the tox is important too. So in the same specimen that I'm look, getting the carbon monoxide, I'm also looking at the toxicology studies. And why is that? Because many fire deaths are also related to intoxication. You have somebody who is really, really drunk or they are, um, you know, they are intoxicated with some other type of drugs, benzodiazepines. Uh, opioids such as fentanyl or morphine, they can lose consciousness while they're doing something involving fire. So like I said, cooking. Um, I had one that was, I think they were making candles. They were doing candle making and then it caught on fire and burned the whole house down and they died. So the presence of intoxication from the toxicology studies, that's very important. Uh, keep that in mind. And also if you're going to play with fire, maybe don't get super drunk and or do fentanyl, it's going to be a bad idea, probably. 
Um, and so now we're going to talk about the autopsy itself. People always say, well, how do you autopsy a body that's burnt to a crisp? You just look at it and make your notes and then shove it back in the cooler. No, we actually perform an autopsy just like any other autopsy. The body is incinerated in many cases, um, uh, particularly at the limbs, but in the trunk of the body, so the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, we can still get in there and not only obtain blood, liquid blood, uh, but we can get the organs out as well. Um, So this is often very surprising to people. They think that because the outside of the body is burned or there's even um, the, the bowels can become extruded, the organs of the abdomen can sort of burst through the, ba- the uh, anterior abdominal wall. Uh, but no, you can open up just like normal and everything is uh, in, its, in its own place, even the really badly charred ones. Now, the difference is, is that the organs themselves can shrink down and this is due to dehydration of water. So, uh, or rather evaporation, which results in a dehydration process. So a heart that might be the size of someone's fist or a little bigger can be the size of, you know, maybe uh, kind of a medium sized tomato or something like that. Now, remember, pathologists always like to use food references. So now I'm talking about tomatoes and why not go ahead and talk about what cutting the tissue is like cutting a burnt uh, body is a little bit like cutting a burnt steak, um, a very badly burned steak, because we are, in a sense, uh, skeletal muscle and bones, just like if we were to eat um, a steak or a hamburger, it's also skeletal muscle. I know you don't like to think of that, but that's the way it is. And so we've got uh, tomatoes and steak now that we've talked about. So I'm sure you're very happy with me at this point. Um, But basically what happens is these become so burned that the scalpel itself will dull. We'll have to change scalpel blades uh, a couple of times during some of these autopsies because the tissue is so hard to cut. And basically you do the autopsy just like normal. You know, you try to get your blood so that you can get your carbon monoxide and your toxicology. And you're going to go ahead and take the heart, lungs, liver, spleen, pancreas, kidneys, adrenal glands, um, intestines, reproductive organs, Uh, such as the uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries, the bladder and prostate for a male. And you're going to do a regular autopsy like normal. And, well, why would you do that, Dr. Wolf? Uh, They're burned up. It's pretty obvious. Ah, but if it were only that simple. Um, We still have to look at these organs because we want to see if there are natural diseases. What if someone had a heart attack uh, while they were cooking or making candles or building a fire and then everything, uh, they, they collapse, and then everything catches on fire. Well, it would be nice for me to be able to look at that and say, ah, they had a heart attack, or they had a pulmonary embolism, or maybe they had a ruptured aorta, or something that can show me that there was an acute natural cause of death. Um, also very important in the automobile-related fires Um, did they have a medical event, something in the brain, let's say an intracranial hemorrhage or a heart attack, or again, you come to the, the common sudden death things, you know, like pulmonary embolism or aortic rupture. And can you find these things and explain why this happened? Or do we see injuries that, uh, are related to the death? Did the person have a car accident and die, and then the vehicle caught on fire. Um, It helps, again, for insurance purposes, and it also helps for closure purposes for the family. They want to know what happened. You can't sugarcoat things. You can't say, oh, well, you know, it was was fine. They, they They weren't alive or they were alive. I mean, you have to tell them the truth, and that's what the autopsy report is. It's a, it's a document of truth. Maybe that's what I'll call the, uh, you know, my memoir. The document of truth. I don't know. Anyway, so um, basically we're trying to find out the sequence of events. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we simply cannot find the answer um, and we can only call it burns and smoke inhalation. But how do we know beyond the carbon monoxide level? How can we be very certain that they were breathing at the time of the fire? Well, the carbon monoxide level can be 
uh, very helpful and, and unequivocal in that manner. But what if it was a very low carbon monoxide level? Uh, let's say 17%. It's higher than it should be, but it's not typical for what you see for a fire. So how do I know as a pathologist? And this is always a great finding. Um, it's not great in terms of, you know, I'm happy. Obviously, I'm not happy that the person passed, but I'm happy that I got the answer. And that is to open up the airways and look for soot inside of the airways. And what I mean by the airways is you start at the larynx and you open up the larynx um, or you open up the trachea or the large main stem bronchi, which go to each lung. And if it is coated in black soot, grayish black soot, you know they were breathing in the products of combustion at the time of the fire. And you can compare that um, along with, you can combine that rather, along with the carbon monoxide level and make a definitive call of this is a death due to smoke inhalation, a death due to thermal burns, um, a death due to carbon monoxide intoxication. It's all, um, you know, two sides of the same coin a lot of the time. And, um, but that's, you know, that's basically one of those moments where you can really make people excited in the morgue. And I try not to make people too excited. I don't want any dancing to break out or anything. Um, but when you can show that, that is going to be a good photography moment where you can take those pictures and you can say definitely they were uh, alive at the time of the fire. Now, I could go on and on and give you uh, a bunch of different case examples. Um, but, you know, you have other things to do in life. You don't want to sit here for two hours listening to me talk. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to go off topic. I'm going to try to keep it under an hour. But I will tell you about a case I had and I'll, and how we use this information. And I can talk about this case because it's already gone through the court system and it's already been completed and the case is over. So I feel I can talk about it. Um, when, a, when a case is in court or it's some kind of something that may involve um, litigation down the line, that I never talk about that, never post about that, no pictures, anything like that. So um, this one was a body found in a house, and the house was burning, and the man, uh, the body itself, has, was partially burned. It wasn't uh, completely charred, but we went ahead and um, we treated it like a homicide because it, it just there was some sketchy stuff going on with the scene examination. And it looked like there was a, an accelerant, looked like there was a can of lighter fluid or something of that nature and that uh, the body had been burned. And so we did our x-rays, and we found in the x-rays a bullet in the cervical spine and the neck. So in the spinal canal, basically. And then what we were able to do is, knowing that information, you know that the bullet most likely came in in the top half of the body, um, particularly in the neck itself. But bullets can end up in the neck that pass through the head, or pass through the chest, or even the abdomen, depending on the angle of the gunshot. So uh, I'm not going to go into a gunshot wound physics right now. That's a whole series on its own. But the point is, I found a bullet. Uh, then I was able to look closely at the skin of the individual. There was some intact skin, and we found a gunshot wound on the anterior neck, the front of the neck. And I was able to dissect and trace down to the spinal canal, recover the bullet, we give the bullet to police, and then they take it to their ballistics experts who then do an examination of that bullet, and then they try to match it to a suspected murder weapon. And so they were, if they were able to get the weapon, in this case they were, they were able to match the bullet to the gun that was fired. Now, moreover, um, it was important to prove that this man had been killed first and then the burn occurred second. So how did we do that? Well, we did exactly what I've told you in this podcast. Um, I drew blood, and we found that the carbon monoxide percentage was under 5%, which that means the person is not breathing. They are not breathing, therefore they are not taking in oxygen, and therefore they are not taking in the products of combustion that is mixed with the air, which would include carbon monoxide, which would then bind with the hemoglobin in the cells. 
that would increase the carboxyhemoglobin well above 5%, well above 10, 20, 30%. And it was 0%, or I think it was less than 5 is how they reported it. So we knew at that point he was dead. But for further evidence, we opened up the airways and the airways of the larynx and the trachea and the bronchi were all nice and tan pink and beautiful and did not have coverage in soot. And so long story short, they were able to establish um, roughly when this man died, they were able to establish that he was shot. Then the fire started. And as a result, they were able to go through the court system and get a conviction in this case. And yes, I was an expert witness in this case. They, uh, um, a lot of times I get questions from individuals about, you know, how much legal work do I do? Am I an expert witness? And the answer is yes, I do a lot of that work. Um, however, the pandemic closed a lot of court this year because courtrooms are often poorly ventilated and small places that are packed with people. So definitely um, a very bad situation for coronavirus, which spreads in that way. Uh, So I haven't done much court this year after the summer. I think the summer when the numbers were low, they were still doing it. Um, But yes, so we'll talk about court at another time. Um, That is going to be an episode on its own. It may make it into my season one. It may not. But, um, you know, the, the other reason why I wanted to talk about fires today and carbon monoxide is for the public health reason. Every year it is predictable starting in October and all the way through March, I have increased fires and I have increased smoke inhalation deaths because people are inside and they're creating their own fires or they have their own space heaters And then they unfortunately have an accident. The thing catches on fire and they die. Um, So what I'm telling you this for is if you know anybody who maybe uh, could have some, um, they're, they're not in a good living situation where they have to use space heaters to warm themselves, please check on them. Um, Be aware of, of this situation. A lot of times these are people of low income who have to use space heaters and then they have to kind of crowd them together. And then you have something catch on fire. They become unconscious because of the carbon monoxide and then they burn up. So the other thing I would say is be mindful of that situation. And also don't hesitate to go buy a carbon monoxide detector for somebody who might need it with a fresh battery, by the way. You must have these things changed. Um, And then not even in the situation of those who are having a tough time with their housing, but you yourselves in your apartment, in your houses, in your parents' or grandparents' houses, make sure your batteries are fresh for your carbon monoxide, especially before the winter. Um, I mean, I personally know that I need to check mine right now, probably after this podcast, I'll I'll go uh, make a, a point to check them because I haven't checked them this year. And then, um, you know, on a personal level, my parents live in a very small country house that's like 100 years old, um, horribly ventilated. The electricity was probably put in by Thomas Edison. And, you know, I'm, I, I worry about the uh, being electrical fire. And so I try to make sure that they have an updated uh, carbon monoxide detector with a fresh battery. So I ask that you do that for your families or anybody that you might know, your neighbors. Um, And then maybe something can be prevented. Maybe we can prevent a death. I think that's the goal. I mean, I'm still a doctor. And, um, you know, when we take the Hippocratic Oath, the idea is that we want to preserve life. So with that being said, I think we've talked enough about fires today. You're always welcome to ask me some questions, um, or message me or, you know, whatever you want to do. But, uh, I think this covers it pretty well. Um, it's not all inclusive and I could have done a lot more case studies, but I like to keep these episodes at about an hour or less. So I hope you enjoyed this and I hope to be back very soon. I definitely want to put out another episode before Christmas and hopefully my work schedule will allow for that. All right. Thank you again for listening.